This morning, we want to talk a little bit about the kingdom of God and, and being part of that as we look at the life of Christ. And this morning with where we're at in Mark, we come to the point where Jesus is emerging on the scene and starting his public ministry. And, and what does that look like? And at the same time, he's asking us to come in line and follow and be his disciples. Just in, in five words or less, what does it mean to follow Christ? Be obedient, okay? Deny yourself. Surrender, amen. Serve. Rebirth. Freedom. All kinds of different words that we use. And, and as we go through the, the Gospel of Mark, one of the, the themes that I mentioned we would be talking about is what does discipleship mean? What does it mean to follow Christ? We have so many different ideas of what it means to follow Christ. We can at times think that just by, by virtue of being part of the Christian family, by virtue of being saved, we are followers of Christ. And that'd be like if, if you were a father coming home and maybe you have a college age or older young man that's living in your home still under your roof. And so some of you that are in that boat, listen up. And you come home and they're sitting on the couch in front of the PlayStation playing. That never happens. And you come in after a long day of work and you start to sit down and they say, your son says, Dad, the car's broken down. I need some help on my car. Could you go fix that for me? I'll be here. Let me know when it's done. Is that being part of the family? No. That is not being part in the way that you would expect family members to come together and that you would expect family members to join together and be part of the family. And it's interesting, as we think about following Christ, we have the same dilemma. Do we think of following Christ just as I'm saved, I'm a Christian, woohoo, I'm going to sit here and play my little games? Or does it mean something more? Does it mean more involvement? This morning we come to, like I said, the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And, and we'll look at five different characteristics that, that were true of Jesus as He began His ministry. But as followers and imitators of Christ, those same five characteristics are to be true of us. Those same five things that we see in Christ's example are things that we are to put into practice as we minister, as we follow, as we serve in the church. How do we go about doing that? It's interesting, even in this morning's news, we have Gaddafi in, in Libya launching a counteroffensive and just a bloody counteroffensive against the uprising in his country. And two weeks ago, we have the situation with Egypt and, and the fall of the leader there. And, and we are seeing vivid examples of men trying to hold a kingdom in their tight hands and trying to just squeeze until people follow them. And we're seeing the results of that. But when the King of Kings arrives on the face of the planet to launch His kingdom, it looks very, very different. And He asks us to follow. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Let's explore the life of Christ and get to know Him. Love His character. Model how He lives. Mark chapter 1. 
We're starting at verse 9. And today we're going to look at four different paragraphs, four different stories that go boom, 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 boom. It's about how fast Mark presents them. Because it's all about the beginning of the ministry of Christ. And they give us a picture of who Christ is. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. First word that you see in your notes. The first characteristic that we'll find in the life of Christ as He begins His ministry is that of obedience. It was actually the first one you mentioned with what it means to follow Christ. Obedience. Jesus' ministry was initiated and empowered by God. And Jesus obeyed. Jesus' ministry was initiated and empowered by God. And Jesus obeyed. Let's start reading at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And this verse stands in contrast with the verses right before this where, where John has just said, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water and He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And He's just proclaimed that this mighty one is coming and, and His baptism is so much greater than my baptism. And so we expect that Mark as the storyteller has set up a scene where the king is going to arrive in glory and burst onto the scene and capture his kingdom and people will follow. And the very next verse where we pick it up today, verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And right from the start, anyone hearing this would say, ooh, Are you serious? Nazareth? Do you know what Nazareth is like? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And so right from the start, we see a different picture of who Jesus was. It's interesting that Jesus is about 30 years old at this point. And as we think about what's going on, and and Jesus is He's a carpenter's son and, and performing the trade of carpenter... That's, that's a lot of tables to build waiting. Waiting to, for the kingdom to be launched. Waiting for His ministry to be launched. And what we see in Christ in this story and throughout the, the, the Gospels is a man that was completely obedient to God the Father. Completely submissive to His timing, to His will, to His plan. And God in His perfect timing waited. And waited until Jesus was 30. And then now is the time. And He comes on the scene from Nazareth, not this King, but as a humble, obedient servant. Mark here, it's interesting, in verse 9, just just for those literary buffs, He actually changes the tense of all His verbs here. Up until now, it's been all in the past tense, and we call that the aorist where it's pretty simple, and John did this, and John did this. And in verse 9, he switches to, and he was doing this, and he was doing this, and he's going to do this, and, and he did this, and he does this. And, and you see that John, Mark here is right into the story. And he's into telling the story, and he's into engrossing us into it and bringing us in. 
Because now he's to his theme. Now he's to the life of Christ. And Jesus is finally introduced. So we see Jesus from Nazareth. And then instead of baptizing John, it says, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we see an abbreviated version of the story. We have more details in some of the other Gospels. But Mark here is just trying to get to the point that this was the beginning of Christ's ministry. And He came as an obedient servant. Instead of demanding glory and prestige and power and saying, well, okay, I'm here. John, you're done. Tell you what, I'll baptize you because really I'm greater. He steps on the scene and says, John, baptize me. John, baptize me. Why did He do this? And in Matthew 3.15, we see that He said it's so that all righteousness could be fulfilled. But what does that mean? And in your notes, I think I left place for three, three parts of why Jesus was baptized by John, which was an act of submission. It was an act of humility. The first was to identify with John's ministry. To identify with John's ministry of repentance. Baptism at the time stood for an initiation into something, an identification with something. And Jesus here, by being baptized into John's baptism, and remember we saw last week that John was preaching repentance and turning to Christ, turning to God, forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes and He says, baptize me. And by doing so, it's a stamp of approval on John's ministry. It's saying, yes, repent. Yes, this is true. Yes, turn. Now don't think for an instant that Jesus had any sins He had to to confess. In fact, if you look at verses 5 and and 9, just for fun, they're they're structured the same exact way, but with different results. And actually, 9 leaves one phrase out. In verse 5, we see a structure who was coming. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him. They were coming to John the Baptist. And what was being done? They were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And in verse 9, we have the same structure. In fact, there's a lot of parallels. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, someone coming and where they're coming from, and was baptized by John, Who's baptizing and that and what is he doing in the Jordan? And it stops. And it's a deliberate point by the storyteller to say Jesus didn't didn't confess sins. He had no sin to confess. He was perfect. He was king. He was God. And he was baptized by John in identification of what we need to do. Repent. Repent. And so it was an acceptance of John's ministry and the message of repentance, a stamp of approval. Second reason why Jesus was baptized was to identify with us. To identify with sinful humanity that He came to save. See, it wasn't just as He hung on the cross that that He identified with us and stooped to our level and became a servant as we are. It was through His whole life And right from the start, as he is baptized by John, he is identifying with the very people he came to save. An act of humility, an act of compassion, an act of love. 
the man who would take our sin on the cross, began his public ministry by identifying with us and being with us. Third reason why Jesus was baptized by John is this was a symbol of his acceptance of his mission. Not to, to get too trite, but if you've ever watched Mission Impossible and, and especially the old TV shows, I don't know whether anyone remembers those. And Careful. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> they were great, weren't they? <laughs> From what I hear. And at the beginning of every show, a tape would come, right? And, and nowadays it's not a tape in the movies. I guess it's little CDs or little electronic things. But a tape would come and it would be, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it. And this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. You know, all that kind of stuff. And, and we always knew it would have made a very sh- short show if the characters... I'm not going to accept this one. <laughs> Commercial. Um, <laughs> No, they always accepted it, but, but that was a little bit of what the baptism meant that was part of why Jesus was baptized by John is this was a public acceptance to God the Father that He was accepting His mission. That He was accepting the purpose, literally that He was obeying the Father. And when we look at the life of Christ, we see a life that is sold out for obedience to God the Father. A life that is sold out to be led by the Spirit. We're going to see that in the next story as well. And to be baptized by John was to say, I obey and I accept. And this is the start of that. And I believe that's why the very next phrase... And the very next word Mark uses is immediately. Immediately. And it's the first time of 42 times he's going to use that in the book. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And at the moment of his obedience, as he came out of the water, signifying, I accept the will of my Father. The Father validates it. And the Father steps onto the scene and, and in a glorious way says, Yes! Yes! With incredible words. We see in those verses in verse 9, or in 10 rather, the heavens being torn open. And to understand the stories, there's so much that goes into it with their expectations of the Old Testament. But whenever the heavens were opened, there was an expectation that God was going to speak and that God was going to speak a new revelation. And it's interesting because Mark actually uses a different word from open here. He uses the word schizo, which means to tear. To tear open. And the imagery is that God at this moment in time is tearing open the fabric of society, a tear that cannot be repaired, a tear that that cannot be closed back up, and He's tearing open society and inserting His Son and starting something new, redeeming creation to Himself. And it's an incredible moment in time. Where God speaks And His work 
cannot be stopped. The Jews were looking forward to something like this. In Isaiah 64.1, some of the, the prophecies about the coming Messiah Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And we see God stepping onto the scene because His Son obeyed. Second part of that verse, we see the third person of the Trinity and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. In Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2, again talking about the Messiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then this beautiful picture at the beginning of Christ's ministry, because of obedience... God Himself speaks and the Spirit of God rests on Him. And we see the three persons of the Trinity creating again. It's interesting, the word for, for dove there and the, the, spirit, the, the dove coming down is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And I don't know if you remember it. In verse 1, we have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, and the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters of the deep. And the word for hovering there literally means fluttering. And in fact, rabbis of the time would, would use the image of a dove to illustrate what the Spirit was doing in creation. And nowadays we think, oh yeah, spirit, dove, and we use that all the time. That wasn't the case. This was the only other case where the, the Holy Spirit was referred to as a dove. And, and in beautiful symmetry, we see in Genesis 1, creation. We see God the Father initiated it. And we know in Colossians that Jesus is who creation was done through. And in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is part of that process. And we see the Godhead, the Trinity, in a beautiful way, creating. And then in Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus, we see Jesus as the means for redemption. We see God the Father as the initiator, as the, the creator. And we see the Holy Spirit as the enabler, as the power, as the strength. And the people that heard this would not have missed that connection. For us, it's a little hard to see. And we're like, what? What?" But that connection is huge because God here at this moment in time is redeeming creation back to Himself. The purpose of all the Bible. And we see that at the end at the new heavens and the new earth. And, And He is creating again. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. What a statement to hear from Dad. Amen? Can you just picture your dad telling you that? You are my beloved, literally my most loved or my precious son, my precious daughter. In you, I am well pleased. 
and we see a window into the Trinity and, and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and perfect love. And perfect love that has existed for all time. We studied in 1 John chapter 1 that God is love. Well, one of the reasons that He is love and always has been love is that that love occurs within the Trinity. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves the Father. And, and they obey. God the Son obeys God the Father. And they glorify each other. In fact, one author, in thinking this through and carrying it out, said, really, if there was no Trinity, you couldn't even say God is love. Because at some point, He wasn't then, because there was no one else to love. But the very fact of the Trinity, the very fact of the Godhead, shows that God has been love for eternity, for all times. But here, in response to Jesus' obedience, we see, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And two verses out of the Old Testament are being quoted here by God Himself. It's an amazing thing. And the first is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. A psalm that was used for coronations of kings and that was used in, in reference to the Messiah someday. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we read, I will tell you the, of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that first part, You are my son, was a testimony to his kingship, to his heritage, to his lineage, that he is the son of God. But then the second half, with you I am well pleased, they would have understood to come from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And again, it's part of the servant songs in Isaiah as they are referring to the coming Messiah. And God himself quotes both the coronation of the king in Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah 42, the song of the servant. It says, my servant will come. I delight in him. My spirit will rest on him. And he will redeem nations to himself. And in this one phrase by God, we see the servant king. That this wasn't a dictatorship that he was forming. This was a kingdom that looked much different that was led by a servant. And in that phrase, we see both love and approval. You are my beloved son. My prized son. And approval, which was an affirmation of his person, of his mission, that he was the man sent to fulfill the task. And it's interesting to me to look at this and we can detach ourselves from it and say, oh, that's great. That's how, that's how God felt about Jesus. That is so special. But then we see in John a little bit later that Jesus says, as my Father has loved me, I love you. And we see a picture of how the Father loves the Son. And we see a picture of how we are loved by the Son. 
and prized and cherished. Just by way of of personal application, dads, the words you speak to your children have far more power than you will ever know. Whether they're young and living in your home, whether they're children or whether they're adults, the words you speak to your children will enable them to obey, will enable them to to blossom. And are you communicating these two truths? Are you communicating an unconditional love to your children? A delight in your children? And if you're not, start today. Find ways to make sure your children know you love them. And that love is separated from performance. It has nothing to do with what they do. You love them. Now, some of the things they do get disciplined and should get disciplined, and that is love. But are you communicating that you love them? And secondly, are you communicating that you approve of different things in their lives? And I know at times this is hard. Some of you are in situations where you're like, my... My son or my daughter, there's not much I can approve of. They are not walking with God and they are in sin. Find something. I'm not suggesting that you lie. I'm not suggesting that you say, oh, I love how you're living when when it's sinful. Find something truthful that you can say and build into your sons and your daughters. And see what happens. God the Father did that for God the Son. And because of the fullness of the deity, did the son really need that? No. But the example was set. Dads, don't miss your opportunity to invest in your children. And I say adults as well, because I don't know of any adult that wouldn't like to know some areas their dad is proud of them in. See what God does with that. First characteristic of Christ at the start of His ministry is that of obedience. Humbly obeying the timing of the Father with when the ministry is to start. Humbly obeying the attitude with which it's to start. Identifying with people that He didn't need to identify with. A baptism He didn't need. See, effective Christ followers completely obey and bring delight to God. An effective ministry begins when God wants it to begin, not a second sooner. We can have all our own ideas of timing and when things should happen, and we can be pushing things. Effective ministry will begin when God wants it to begin, not when we do. Obedience. We jump to verses 12 and 13, and the scene shifts, but again, Mark uses the word immediately to tie these two together, that they are, they are associated with each other in his mind. And we get to the second word. The second characteristic is testing. Testing. And this one may not make a lot of sense to us. We're like, what, but, what, but, 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 this great thing happened and God the Father proclaimed that the ministry was starting and he was pleased. And then in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And again, we have a short version. We don't have the temptations outlined. We don't have the text. We don't have Christ's response. Because Mark here is making the point, the ministry started, and immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was tested. And God obeyed. Christ obeyed. So testing is the second characteristics. characteristic. Jesus' credentials are immediately tested. No coronation. No celebration. Just wilderness. Last week we showed a picture of the wilderness. A desolate, barren, waterless, ugly place. And Jesus was sent there by the Spirit. This was not some happen chance, but the Holy Spirit that rested on him now is, is directing his life. And Jesus gives us a perfect example of what it means to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-directed. And the Holy Spirit said, go into the wilderness, and Jesus went. And he obeyed. And during that time, he fasted, a time of communion with God, but at the same time, a time where Satan came and just pounded on him and tested, and tempted, and challenged. I call moments like this why moments. Why moments. See, this for Jesus was a necessary consequence of the baptism in the beginning of his ministry. But for me, I think, why? Why? And and have you ever had anything happen in your life where you're like, why? Lord God, I'm following you right now. I'm pursuing you. Why is this happening to me? I can't count the why moments in our lives. And I don't understand them, but I get insight into them and comfort by watching what Jesus went through. I can remember starting into the ministry and and coming out of the the computer industry and having my own business and, and God's call some 15, 16 years ago that said, change directions. Give that up coming to the ministry. And I remember giving up the business and, and giving up just about everything I felt, I believed, and, and going to Talbot and then taking a position here. And to me, that should have been this huge celebration. Look what God is doing and, and He's going to bless and it's going to be exciting. And over the next two years, things happened with the business and the new owners forged my name on things and on contracts and used personal credit and and just disastrous next couple of years. And I remember sitting there saying, why? Why, God? Why now? I'm obeying you. Is this really the response that I get? A few years ago, I remember the first time we took Susie and Mark on a missions trip, and we're like, okay, we're going to try this. And we go down to Rancho Santa Marta and have a wonderful weekend of ministry and come back to the house and find that it is just ransacked. And that's a why moment. Lord, I'm obeying you. Why? But we aren't alone in why moments. Because Jesus is baptized. His ministry is given the stamp of approval by God Almighty. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. And we see Jesus as the servant again, obeying. And the wilderness represented so much to the Jews and to the Jewish nation, and especially the number 40 in response to the wilderness. Do you remember times where the number 40 was used with the wilderness? I heard a lot of things, and I heard none of it. (laughs) Um, 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years of testing after disobedience to say, will you obey? We see Elijah 40 days in the wilderness after success with with Baal's prophets and success with praying for rain. And he is in despair and he's 40 days in the wilderness and the angel is ministering to him. We see Moses and that's a time of testing. We see Moses, Mount Sinai, and the children of Israel, and he's there 40 days, and it's a time of testing for the children of Israel. And they failed. And they built a golden calf, and they lost faith. And so we see Christ coming for 40 days into the wilderness, being tested, being challenged in his faith. Will he use his divine sonship for something other than divine purposes? And we see Christ succeeding where no one else did. And it's a testimony to his credibility, to his credentials. And I am convinced that the sequence here is intentional because whenever we are doing the work of Christ, whenever God's work is starting, Satan will attack with all his might because he would love nothing better than for that to stop. And Jesus is no exception, because if Satan could get Jesus to sin in that wilderness, redemption is done. And we have nothing to live for. In Christ here, by resisting that temptation, shows his validity to be the perfect sacrifice. He shows again His identification with us. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The first Adam failed in the best of conditions. The second Adam succeeded in the worst of conditions and redeemed creation to Himself. Those why moments are times where God has divinely allowed us to prove our faithfulness. The Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness. This was allowed by God. Did God cause the temptation? No. Does He tempt us to sin? No. But He allowed this to happen as part of the proof of who Christ is. See, effective Christ followers will be tested. And they will be attacked. And we must not get discouraged and we must not fall apart, but go back to the God who says, you are my beloved son and you are my beloved daughter and you I am well pleased. And go back to the source of our strength. 
Third word, third characteristic of Christ as he started his ministry. Purpose. Purpose. Jesus boldly steps out into his ministry and purpose in the face of obstacles. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And some time had passed here and some little points of ministry have happened. But Mark now is is moving forward and saying Jesus is faithful to the purpose of His ministry. And it's very insightful that He includes the fact that John was arrested. Because that really changed Jesus' ministry. He now moves from the Jerusalem area and Judea area and He moves north to the Sea of Galilee. And he changes where his ministry is happening. And, and for you and I, man, we're, we're getting involved in ministry and trials are coming and then someone that's in ministry with us gets killed. Well, going to be killed, arrested at this point, not killed yet. That might be a showstopper. That might be, well, okay. Hmm. That was fun. But we see Jesus boldly proclaiming the gospel in repentance and not changing for a moment the purpose of why He is here. And in this verse, we see that the purpose of the forerunner is done. John's ministry is done. Christ now is superseding Him. And the climax of the story of the Bible starts here. Starts here. The time is fulfilled. It is God's perfect time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Not a kingdom that's going to be ruled with swords. Not a kingdom that's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. But a kingdom that that is described throughout all of the Gospels. That is the theme of the Gospel. A kingdom that begins in the heart. A heart of repentance. A heart of turning to God. Turning away from sin. And when we think of the kingdom, they were expecting an earthly rule that would... Fix everything. And so there was a tension in what Jesus was saying here. We now, with the the benefit of Scripture, know that there's an already and a not yet part of the kingdom. And, And when we understand the kingdom, that Christ is bringing the kingdom now to this people. That's the already part. But it starts in the heart as people turn to Him. It starts as a kingdom of citizens of the, of heaven that are devoted and allied with someone different from the rulers of this earth. And the not yet is we still look forward to the future at a point where there will be a perfect kingdom that we will be part of. And sin will be vanquished and death will be vanquished and will be no more. And that's the not yet of the kingdom. And Jesus is preaching both parts here. But introducing the kingdom of the heart. Repent and believe in the Gospel. It's not just a simple belief, but a turning around. If we run back to our sins, we have not repented. If we offer trite confessions and keep doing the same thing, that is not repentance. It is not what Christ wants. But I'm amazed 
that Christ here, after seeing everything that's happened and after being tested and after John being arrested, stands up and preaches even more boldly, repent, repent. See, effective Christ followers will boldly stick to the purpose in the face of obstacles, just as Christ did. We will boldly stick to the purpose of repentance, of sharing Christ in the face of obstacles. The last two characteristics of Christ starting His ministry are out of the last section, starting at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Probably one of those round nets that you see them throwing in a circular motion and casting it into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Fourth word, fourth characteristic of Jesus as he starts his ministry Reproduce. Reproduce. Jesus chose from the very beginning not to minister alone, but to bring disciples that He could train and equip and empower for the kingdom. And He intentionally is walking along this beach. And He intentionally is choosing these men, the first four of His disciples that will follow Him. And He says, follow Me. I am the object of that call. And this was pretty radical at the time because discipleship at the time would, it was always the, the one being discipled that would initiate this. If I wanted to be discipled by, by someone, then I would go to them and say, AJ, would you disciple me? And that was my job. And then when, when AJ had taught me everything I thought I could learn, I would move on and find someone else. But in this case, because of his authority and his position, Jesus does the calling. And he does the asking just as he does with each of us. And he walks along the Sea of Galilee and he says, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. And by following, they accepted Jesus as their authority and they pursued his calling. They were agreeing to model his example. These men undoubtedly had already met Jesus. We know that from John chapter 1. And they had already been familiar with some of his teaching, but they had gone back to their lives. And now Jesus says, follow me. Be my disciples. And he builds into them and trains them to carry on the mission after he is gone. It's interesting because it's not just to follow him to hang out, to have a good time, Enjoy fellowship with 12 guys while we go through the next three years. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that word for for fishers of men, that idea comes actually from the Old Testament. God, God uses the idea of fishing for men and catching men in His nets all the time, but always for judgment. And there's a sense of urgency. As Jesus changes it here, we're going to catch men for the kingdom, but the sense of urgency is to save them from judgment. And so this isn't sort of a fun call that we're going to fish for men now and I will make you fishers of men. This is a call that says, time is short 
and people are going to hell and we need to, we need to reach out and catch people for the gospel. And Jesus reproduces. And to follow him means that we will do the same. Effective Christ followers will train men and women to minister with them. They will not minister alone. Because effective ministry in the church is always ministries that are seeking to hand off ministry and to include people. Without sacrificing the purpose. And finally, the fifth word as we come into communion, sacrifice. Sacrifice. See, the call of Christ was a call of sacrifice. It was a call to drop the nets. To leave what they were doing. It was a call to step aside from normal life and to make Christ and following Him their priority above all else. We see men leaving their professions. We see men leaving their father, which was a huge deal, to follow Christ. And Christ says, I want you to follow me, but I want priority. I want priority over your career. I want priority over your interests, over your time. I want priority over your family. I want priority because that's what it means to follow me. One of our members this week posted on their blog just a powerful note about the priority over family of following Christ. That it's one thing when it's you, it's another thing when you think of your children. And do you love God more than them? Are you willing to sacrifice for Christ everything? And sacrifice isn't to get rid of them, but it's to make Christ a priority over them. And as these men were mending their nets nets, and about their profession, they let it go because effective Christ followers will make Christ priority over all else. Over all else. This morning as we come to communion, communion is about remembering the sacrifice of Christ, remembering what He did to bring us into His kingdom, and in that remembering to give Him priority. To say, Lord, I want You to be first in my life. As I take this bread, I am recognizing that You died on the cross for me and Your body was broken for me, and so I give You priority. As I drink this juice, I recognize that by the blood of Christ and only by the blood of Christ, I am saved and redeemed from my sins. And so really, nothing else makes sense but to give you priority and to give myself to you in complete surrender. As we come to communion, may we keep that in mind. That Christ, as He started His ministry, obeyed, He was tested, He stayed true to the purpose of the Gospel. He sought to reproduce and He calls us to sacrificially follow. And I pray that that's what we do this morning. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank You so much for the privilege of being Your servants, of following You. And I pray that each person here, You would help us this week to follow You in new 
ways and in ways that we haven't thought of before. Lord, may we follow you with our careers and make you a priority over those. May we follow you with our families and make you a priority over that. Lord, if we are facing testing, may we seek your strength as you helped Christ. May we see it as an opportunity to prove faithful, to minister. Lord, may we be your disciples in all that we do. In your name, amen.